The automobile is one of the most important inventions that revolutionized the modern world in America. The rich history of car culture runs deep as technology continues to shape the future of the industry. Jason Stein, publisher of Automotive News, is here to share the stories of people passionate about cars, from industry leaders and innovators to car-obsessed celebrities. Buckle up as Jason takes you inside the boardroom, onto the track, and around the bend on Cars and Culture on Sirius XM Business Radio. Welcome to Cars and Culture. I'm Automotive News Publisher Jason Stein in Detroit. There is so much that could be said about Mercedes-Benz Formula One boss Toto Wolff. The run of seven straight championships in one of the world's most intense and demanding sports. The stewardship of a team that has been elevated to historic heights. The mentorship of one of the greatest race car drivers of all time in Lewis Hamilton. Under Toto's leadership, Mercedes-Benz has been nothing short of dominant, winning 105 of 143 races. Accolades, accomplishments, excellence. Louis, congratulations for the seventh title. I couldn't have done it better. <laughs> fantastic drive with the slicks, fantastic. It's really awesome to, to be a witness of that, Louis. With Torger, Christian, Toto, Wolf. And there's a tendency to gravitate towards elements greater than perhaps any of that. Spend the time listening to the spirit of a man created from the embers of pure tragedy. Losing a father at such a young age assisting his mother in the rebuild of her own life, navigating the despair. Beyond the accomplishments in the financial world, where he's already earned his share of trophy moments, Toto Wolf is a teacher, a philosopher, and a driven human. He speaks German, English, French, Italian, and Polish. His life is full of philosophy. He says there are moments of excellence and determination created out of the hardest moments in a person's life, when resiliency becomes the go-to personality trait determination from despair. And he's had it all. And through those hard times, Total Wolf has created a culture that his competitors respect and that his team members adhere to. And beyond all, he is about the constant pursuit of excellence, the determination of goals, and an end result that is the envy of the sporting world. Super job by Danny Kvyat, uh, and but an even better one by Mercedes for the last seven years. Uh, Toto, how, how does this one compare to the other six? First of all, I need to say thank you. Uh, uh, say thank you to my wife, who hopefully is listening uh, at home and watching, and my three-year-old, who I promised to give a little uh, sign. Um, it is. It feels just great. This this afternoon uh, is just a culmination of of everything. Truth, transparency, success, and the utter examination of failure. An Austrian. He's not only a model of business success, he's the gold standard in the most competitive and expensive sport in the world. And in today's episode, we're catching Toto Wolf at a time illustrative of his motto, recognize your own shortcomings. We're talking to him following a disastrous Monaco Grand Prix where the Mercedes-Benz team performed poorly. In comes Valtteri Bottas and it's oh, the hard time. Right the front's not even off yet. They Glenn. can't get the right front off. Someone needs to get a big hammer and try and give it a shunt with that because at the moment that tyre is not budging and this is Valtteri Bottas' race being ruined before your very eyes. Lewis Hamilton comes home in seventh place. Okay, Lewis, that's P7. That's been a tough day, mate. Sorry about that. Uh, been a bit of a weekend all round. Uh, but uh, yeah, we'll come back stronger. Just need to do an autopsy this one. But it's Toto at his best. Reflective and ready to learn from every mistake. Today, Mercedes-Benz Formula One CEO, Toto Wolf, on Cars and Culture. Toto, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Our conversation today is important because in many ways, you symbolize the concept behind this show, Cars and Culture. You have a career that's currently built around the success of the sport, obviously connected to motor racing and the passion of the car, in this sense, a racing car. But the smell, the excitement, and the energy, all of that, I think, Toto, first led you to the sport and ultimately brought you back and created this latest installment of your own career. But you're also significantly about culture, and you're an enormous student and a proponent of culture. You live it, you cultivate it, modify it, celebrate it. Both kind of go hand in hand, don't they? Yeah, yes, they do. Um, at the end, culture is the immune system of um, a sports team or any com company. So as uh, uh, it is most often seen as a soft factor, not contributing directly to an organization's performance, especially not a technical or engineering organization where everything is measured in data, um, that gives us opportunity 
and gives us an advantage over our um, direct uh, competitors. And you spend a lot of time focusing on culture on a regular basis, probably as much time as you do thinking about the business of sport. I think culture encompasses everything in an organization. You can say that uh, attention to detail, passion, um, energy, empowerment, a no-blame culture. I mean, I could name you 10 other values that are important, are literally so important in terms of making an organization more resilient that as a leader, you just have to, you just have to study that and you just have to continue to develop and build the culture of any organization. Are there those who you've crossed paths with, who you've crossed paths with, who you admire from a cultural standpoint or even from a business standpoint? I think everybody does it um, in a way different. Most important is that you understand uh, what is it that you can personally contribute to an organization and about being authentic. And that's why there will be many different forms of culture and leadership philosophies among people that are lucky enough to head organizations. My personal one is based on the fact that I believe we're in a specialist's world. Doesn't mean you're a one-trick pony, but you need to understand your business and the sport inside out. That's number one. Number two, I believe that Empathy, it's a word that's being too often used these days, mm-hmm. but empathy is incredibly, incredibly important because I cannot develop an aerodynamic surface, but I can know everything about the people that, that do and build a framework around them with the right amount of resource and uh, the motivating incentives and try to keep them in a good, in a good space. And that will contribute to a, to a team's and department's performance. Let's start with the nexus of cars and culture to illustrate maybe some of those points that you just said, because your team's recent experience on the track in the last few days may exemplify probably you and your philosophy really well, kind of illustrative of everything that we're going to cover here during our uh, time on the show. And we're talking just days after Formula One's return to the Monaco Grand Prix for the first time in two years. There, of course, was no Monaco Grand Prix in 2020, and uh, as F1 adjusted around the COVID calendar. But the return to Monaco was important and a significant milestone for Formula One. And I believe it was likely a learning landmark for the team. Uh, you obviously, uh, throughout the course of the of the seven-time championship uh, efforts that you've been able to put together with the team, uh, were not happy with uh, what has been described as, as um, one of the worst days in recent memory on the track. And you took to social media directly afterwards. And you had a message for the Instagram world. We say that the days we lose are the days where we learn the most and our competitors should fear. But when that happens, like today, it just feels awful. Uh, We had a terrible um, race day on Sunday. Why was it important for you to talk so publicly about what you were going to learn? The moment you lose, you will have a whole array of emotions that go through your mind and through your soul and if you are a competitor it will be anger frustration um, trying to release your pressure on someone that is the easiest way of actually uh, blaming anybody else it kind of helps you to get over it and it's very difficult to act differently and for me it is almost a matter of discipline to be able, whilst being in all that pain and suffering, to express a neutral view of what has happened. And part of that is to say, okay, I know what to do. I know that mistakes have been done. I know that we haven't prepared in the right way. But I also know that this will be learnings necessary to progress. And that's why I was utilizing this particular channel to, to send a message into the organization. That's the most important channel that I have in terms of applying the right amount of pressure whilst energizing and motivating everybody that can contribute to future performances. You've said in the past that there's more pain in losing than joy in winning and that in fact it keeps you on your toes. You also say that bad races keep you awake for a few days. So maybe the first question is, have you slept in a few days? getting better at it. In the past, it would be really, we could measure it. Um, and uh, 
I shared uh, experiences with Lewis Hamilton, our driver. And losing is about four days uh, within you and it causes pain and, and, and distress and sleep, lack of sleep. And winning is actually the, the, the joy and happiness of winning is gone by Monday morning, bizarrely. So we are weird little animals. Um, but I, I think it comes out of our philosophy and that is seeing the glass half empty rather than half full. Because half empty means that you can really point the finger on the things that didn't function well, whilst having actually dominated or won on the track. And this is why I'm always skeptical about whether we are really good enough, uh, whether we can sort ourselves up out for the next race or the next championship, whilst the, the joy is always limiting, limited to that very fear that we just lucked out. It's a little bit of an imposter syndrome that we all have. Sure. You also live by the concept of resiliency. And to your point, remembering that when you face a difficult moment, it's your opportunity to grow and develop and get stronger. You're an Austrian. You're, you have to ski when you're born in Austria. And it's kind of like skiing. And it's a perfect analogy for resiliency, right? Staying balanced, going headstrong into a moment that requires some resiliency. That's your view, isn't it? Pretty much the only sport where Austrians um, are number one on a, let's say, global perspective. But staying balanced is generally important uh, for all life, not only whilst um, skiing downhill. I think it is it about is about keeping perspective, um, not na- not being narrowed down in your emotions and reactions by your brain not allowing the emotional part of your brain, the amygdala, to take over, but literally consciously trying to be in um, the rational part of the brain. And you can actively tackle that. And, and with discipline and time, you can, you, you can keep yourself just in a better mind frame of mind. When you develop re- resiliency in an adverse environment, it's also useful later on. I want to go back to something that you once said to someone. You said that your experience with high-performing individuals, that very last percentage of high performers, is that they either suffered trauma or humiliation or both because what would justify to develop the above-average drive and ambition? You're one of the most successful racing team principals in Formula One history, but you had your own trauma as a child. Can you tell me a little bit about your upbringing and what happened with your father? I think what I said is not the let's say universal truth, but I see that the majority of people that I interact, that that go that extra percent, that, that are prepared to take some pain, have had experiences that you could uh, say were in that corner. And um, I wish every child to grow up in a safe environment. And there's plenty of people out there that have been exceptionally successful in whatever business or art they were involved in. So it is it is about being able to channel the negative emotions that you have suffered from into positivity and into energy. And when you try to overcompensate um, the humiliations that you had as a, as a child, the trauma um, and pain that you, had as a, as a chi- that you had as a child, it just gives you that extra dimension, that extra force to do well and, and to be successful. And I think that is almost in your later life a little bit of that is almost in your later life an advantage that you have. But it's yin and yang. It comes with the downsides uh, that you had in a previous part of your life. You're you grew up in Vienna to a Polish mother and a Romanian father. Interestingly, went to a French school, which you have credited uh, with helping you out along the way. Um, but your your father was diagnosed with brain cancer when you were eight years old. Uh, your parents separated following his diagnosis, and and unfortunately he he passed away some ten years later. How did that shape you? Well, that is my personal trauma that I had a dying parent um, from my very early childhood to the end of my puberty. So it affected it affected me it affected me, and this is what I am today. A hardworking mother that tried to keep us afloat financially, whilst at the same time being in a private school that we could 
barely afford and being exposed to an environment where privileged children were. So that's actually the worst of both places. You, if you're in a poor neighborhood, you kind of never see yourself uh, mediocre because you're part of that environment. Um, but what I have seen was very different to the life I could afford, I could live. And that's why uh, I can remember very early in my life, I must have been around nine or 10, that I wanted to be responsible for myself. I wanted to be responsible for my family and look after them rather than being a child that was dependent from anybody else. So the downside is that these emotions still keep, still make me suffer occasionally, um, but also are a very strong driver. I want to have my family in a, in a better place that, that I was raised, um, but not, I, I couldn't identify any wrongdoing from my parents. It's just how things happened. And the psychological impact had to be enormous. The psychological impact was enormous. I mean, little things. You're coming home. You have a very ill father. You, I remember one instance when I must have been 13 years old. So it's the moment you you want, you become a little a little person. That um, I was being called out of class at, uh, after the lunch break, and I was being led down to the headmaster's office. And there sat my 10 year old sister and the headmaster. Um, he said it straight into our face that we need to leave school because again the school fee isn't paid so i had to walk up back to the classroom pick up my pick up my um, my little backpack uh whilst my stupid friends were saying oh you're so lucky you can go home but it was the biggest humiliation that i have suffered mm -hmm. and in the way home in a 45 minute tram ride with my sister I had to explain to this 10-year-old girl why we had to leave school. And as you can imagine, this is something you won't, never want to expose any child to. Now you can say, okay, it was in a private school and uh, there's much worse problem than that. But you always, in your own reality, and uh, that was a painful exercise, or that was a painful experience for me. Yeah. Resiliency. At 17, you joined a friend and all of a sudden you were at the Nürburgring uh, watching a Formula 3 uh, race and you saw what you described as modern gladiators on the track and you got bit by the bug, the racing bug. But you had a hard time financing that and you had a very creative idea. How did you, what was your idea for trying to uh, be able to afford the opportunity to start racing? Racing was a tool for me to kind of shape my own future. In my environment, there wasn't a lot of professional sports and there wasn't anybody racing because my friend lived in Switzerland. So I, I started to get really interested and uh, went to a racing school. Wasn't uh, wasn't uh, the worst one there. And um, Walter Lechner, right? Walter Lechner. Walter Lechner. Yeah. yeah, that was at the, I say, maybe in continental Europe with the Jim Russell racing mm -hmm. school, the most, um, the most renowned one. Won my course and got a little bit of a budget from uh, the racing team um, to race in single seaters. And then I, I figured out there's still a big gap to what I needed for a full season. And so I started to speak to all the parents that I knew from my friends in school and Interestingly, I raised some sponsorship. I made the whole presentation myself. I went there, put my best suit and tie on, <laughs> and eventually had the budget together for a, let's say, a small little season. And that was very important to see for me because actually driving is one thing, but as I'm 17 or 18 year old to raise money and understand that it's very difficult was an important part of my, my development for future, for my future career. But I'm guessing that that experience early on helped you get beyond the previous experience that we just discussed. You had a little bit of a pathway to something that was much brighter. Yes, because motor racing made me stand out from the group. There wasn't really anything that would have um, allowed me to, to be something better. And uh, motor racing was so different that I felt more together with the sport. I also like the story that you you said, well, uh, make make this my Christmas uh, gift, my birthday gift, my next Christmas gift, and my next birthday gift, four gifts into one to pay for racing school. Is that accurate? 
Yeah, that's accurate. My mother worked as a doctor for a state-owned hospital, and um, her salary barely takes us through a month. So I got her and my grandfather to basically put old future gifts together <laughs> in this one uh, racing school week, and they did it. And uh, yeah, that was the start of my racing. So racing ultimately leads to the next incarnation and a little more resiliency when they tell you in 1994 that actually you're not going to be a racer and the sponsorships are maybe not there. Of course, I think the death of Ayrton Senna, uh, you have said, uh, led to uh, a lot of that um, second thoughts, if you will, on the sponsorship side. So now you end up in the trading floor of a bank in Warsaw. More resiliency. You've gone from racing to finance. And what did you learn there? Well, first, let me ask you, Toto, what, what you had to have missed the track. All of a sudden, now you're in your suit and tie on a permanent basis. Yes, it was a less enjoyable experience. I cried <laughs> my eyes out uh, when I was alone um, and couldn't believe that suddenly I was sitting in an, in an investment bank as a trainee when I, everybody else was on racing tracks, uh, driving cars, which, which I adored. But Ayrton Senna's death shut the opportunities for me uh, for future single-seater racing because my main sponsor decided to pull out. So it was clear it came to a natural end. And I also felt that I lacked the background in go-karting and I wouldn't be a Formula One world champion, probably. And that's why when it happened, I said to myself, okay, let's utilize this opportunity. Let's be the youngest successful investment banker all my friends were either studying or traveling and i started to work the first the first of the group and my my frustration at the beginning quickly changed into motivation and enjoyment that i was earning my own money and a competitive spirit that was just taken to a different arena and at, all of a sudden you catch a wave on the um the internet boom that was occurring you uh you went to America for a short stint and and understood what was happening with companies like AOL and Netscape and and business business that was in America could be possibly transformed to the European business community. And now all of a sudden you've got a you you have your own legitimate business that's going, and that had to be hugely satisfying. It was because what started as a equity for consulting developed into a real little investment and venture capital firm in the German speaking countries. We did. We did well, and I got some satisfaction out of that because from an employee with a salary, I transitioned to an entrepreneur. And because there was a real opportunity back in the day to a situation where I could afford to pay for my mother's and my sister's life and have reserves um, myself, be able to afford a better life for all of us. And then the company grew, we had offices, in Vienna, Berlin, Zurich, Tel Aviv, Warsaw. And my ambition that went from motor racing went into venture capital. And I forgot about motor racing for in, 10 years. Until until you didn't, <laughs> until you came back to it. Yeah, until I didn't. And uh, But that was more like a, like a hobby. And uh, with the, still the same ambition to be as fast and as competitive as the pros. And I tried a little bit of... Uh, prototype racing, GT cars, touring cars, and then went into rallying because it was the intellectually more stimulant activity, being able to combine analysis and uh, intellect while still taking risks in a kind of controlled way. And this also shaped my philosophy in the investment banking or venture capital way. Um, if, you're, if you can live with the worst outcome, you can take the risk. If you can't, don't go there. And tell us how you got then connected with Formula One. When stepping back into a racing environment, I I saw that there were young there was young talents that were in a similar situation to mine, couldn't afford, couldn't really afford to race. And um, I helped. I started to help these kids out first, um, just uh, in an in an angel investor form, and then with a professional management company. And whilst doing that, I established connections to auto companies and joined forces. And Mercedes was 
one of them and we had a Mercedes Junior program that was half financed by myself and half financed by Mercedes. And then one day um, I find myself as a, as a co-owner of uh, a Mercedes racing team and we grew that entity to solid mid-size company that was involved in form, making Formula 3 engines, touring cars, GT cars, limited road cars for AMG. And uh, that was the, basically combining my love for cars, particularly racing cars, and investments. You had to have been extremely thrilled to be coming full circle to some extent in the, in the sense that, you know, if you go back more than a decade prior, this was where the passion was. This was, this was what you really wanted to experience. And now you had the chance to make a mark in a different area. Of course, you weren't, you weren't in the seat, but you were combining your business uh, acumen and experience and, and translating that into the track to some extent. Yes, and uh, it was an interesting experience that I made that made me realize I wasn't aware that it went all the way back to racing. And I invested in an auto company heavily involved in motor racing and we IPO'd it. And as the business model was for venture capital firms, I exited the company in the IPO and we sold a majority stake to a Middle Eastern investor. And uh, I remained on the board as a non-executive and went to one of the races and realized I'd actually like to continue to own this company. And realized that it was that my passion for investing and exiting generating cash actually changed to a desire for a more entrepreneurial role because i love the sport and by 2012 mercedes-benz needs a managing partner it needs it wants somebody with skin in the game it wants to change the structure of its own formula one team and so here comes another opportunity one that was yeah, there, there was a step in between. The step in between was that I bought a stake in Williams, Formula One team. Williams is one of the most successful historic, historic, yeah, yeah, racing teams with Frank Williams at the helm of it, uh, team principal in a wheelchair, highly inspiring person. And I bought a minority share in Williams, uh, grew the stake, and in 2012, our chief executive officer resigned from one day to the other because of a non-alignment with the board. And Frank Williams um, approached me and said, do you want to run it, run it with me together? And here I find myself for the first time in an executive function running, running the team. And I loved it. Uh, that season, we, we won the last Formula One race for Williams um, until today. And um, I enjoyed taking the team um, to the next level. And then the same year, Mercedes approached me and said, how can it be that a private team like Williams is starting to beat Mercedes uh, on track? Can you can you analyze? And I tried as good as I could to, to understand. Uh, they allowed me access whilst keeping it confidential. And I came to the conclusion that their expectations were different to mine. We operated on the same budget. And when I asked them what when I asked the directors of uh, Mercedes what their objectives were they said well winning the world championship and I said but then one of us is, is wrong because I have to, I'm operating on the same budget and my expectation is finishing in the top five yours is to win so you gotta set your so you gotta set your targets more realistically and this is when we started the conversation that eventually ended up in me uh, buying 30 percent of the team and running it. And for you, how pivotal was that moment in your in your career path? How how much did that, I, maybe how significant was it for you to make that kind of change? It was very significant because that is the moment I decided to switch from a purely investment-like philosophy because you could see the transitional year with, with Williams was, a, I saw it as a transitional year that eventually I would come back into, the, um, into finance. But then I took a operational role and I liked it. I was on, it was entrepreneurial because I co-owned the team. Daimler gave me a very long leash so I could manage a team in a way that I thought was right, whilst providing me with the right support of this mighty brand Mercedes in the background. And pretty soon 
we we started to become more successful and since then i enjoyed the ride we'll hear more from mercedes-benz total cars and culture on sirius xm business radio jason stein publisher of automotive news is here to share the stories of people passionate about cars from industry leaders and innovators to car obsessed celebrities cars and culture on sirius xm business radio Somebody asked you once whether it had been, when it was five years, whether it had been a long five years, and you said it had been a long five years. So now it's eight years. Has it been a long eight years? It has been a long eight years that today feel much less long than they felt two years ago when I was asked the question. And in between, whilst running the team, I had a year of reflection. COVID, in a way, came came at the right time for me in terms of my professional career because suddenly it, it made us all jump out of the hamster wheel. Rather than going from race to race, from continent to con- continent, we were all confined in a place. And I asked myself a question, do you want to continue owning this team and running it and making it a integrated sports entity, very successful or would I want to go back in, uh, in more diversified investment activity? And I came to the conclusion, and it took me 10 months, that this was the space I wanted to stay whilst acknowledging that there will be a time in my life, and that is not too far away, that I will step aside to allow the next generation running the team whilst staying on as a shareholder or as a chairman. So stepping out of the day-to-day and more of the observational and tutoring and teaching yeah um stepping off the dance floor and spending more time on the balcony but then i know myself i try to understand what is going on and to a certain degree also have control and control doesn't necessarily mean that i need to micromanage control can also be allowing mistakes but um being aware of them allowing the new management a younger generation to make mistakes but knowing what is going on and that is something that i see as necessary because this job you can't do forever we are i spent 250 nights in in hotels 700 hours in an airplane you suffer from jet lag and you're not seeing your family enough and it is basically the work work-life balance isn't the, isn't something that as a concept exists anymore it's just all work it's non-stop 24 7 mm. and i don't believe that you can be you can stay as effective uh for a long time as you've been when when you started the job you've had the wonderful experience of being connected to to two dynamic individuals uh, both of whom i'd like to ask you about one is of course lewis hamilton who you describe as one of the greatest race car drivers of his generation but also Nicky Lauda. So let's focus on Nicky first. He was actually the cousin of your ex-wife. He was in your family. Yeah, but I didn't get to know him before. It was an interesting coincidence that we ended up um, in the same sport. I was a non-executive at Williams, like I mentioned to you before, and he was a TV present commentator. And so we started to travel together, but the relationship wasn't particularly close. And, and when Mercedes asked me to buy a stake in the team, they just hired Nicky Lauda as a non-executive chairman. And when we agreed the deal, they said to me, there's one slight problem, you've got to tell Nicky. And I said, well, didn't you tell him? And I said, no, we'd actually like you to work with him and inform him. And I saw him in Brazil and said, you know, just to tell you, I bought 40% in the team. Uh, and he said, okay, that comes as a surprise. Let me think about it um, overnight. And like Nikki is, it didn't take overnight. He came back to see him an hour later and said, okay, I think together we can be more successful than me on my own. And I think you're a good investor. So from the 40%, I'd like to take 10% uh, with the same in the same structure like you did, uh, same terms and conditions. And here we go. Uh, I had 30%, he had 10 he was the non-executive chairman, and I was the chief executive officer and team principal. But you needed to come to a common understanding on, on a couple of things. And there was a famous Stuttgart airport conversation that you had. Can you tell me about that? Yes. At the beginning, uh, we each of us tried to protect his area. And 
for him, I was a finance guy and he was the racing guy. And we often didn't share, share opinion. And it became quite distracting um, to have that internal fight. And eventually the Daimler board said, well, we can't continue like that. And they called us to Stuttgart and say, we'd like you two to, you two to run it. Nikki, you're non-executive. You should let Total um, run it operationally. And he said, that's when I realized that we could do it together, but in split functions. And I said to him, I'd rather have you on board, but you need to understand that your role is non-executive, but it can be so impactful. Your sheer presence gives us strength. And then our relationship changed from a purely professional situation into friendship. And over the years with all our traveling, because we used to travel just the two of us and uh, literally spending every dinner together, uh, talking about motor racing, which we were both 100% focused on, we found out that even in our spare time, we wanted to spend time with each other and talk about motor racing. And there's a funny anecdote that we have this mandatory summer break um, for two, two and a half weeks. And I was with my family in a hotel in Sardinia. And I could have a missed call at 6.30 in the morning and then another one at 7.30. So I called him back and he says, I took the boat right in front of your hotel. I was in Spain, decided to come to Sardinia and I'm sitting in the rest in the uh, breakfast place having on my second espresso. Can you please come down so we can have a chat? And I opened the windows and I saw his boat literally 100 meters offshore. And I said, I can't believe it. You're stalking me now in my holidays. <laughs> But to be honest, it's just what I like to have too. You miss him every day, right? I miss him every day. I miss him every day. Um, he, he was my closest friend at the end over many years. And uh, so much that I learned from him. And he was just an exceptional personality. The, the ability at the age of 70 to still be open to new experiences, learn, accept that you're not perfect, or accept that we are all imperfect. And there's another funny story that he was a very, very experienced pilot. He had over 10,000 hours. So we were approaching Tokyo in a typhoon. His two pilots were operating the aircraft and Nick and I sat in the cabin. And thunderstorms, uh, lightnings, um, big, big turbulence. And Suddenly, Nikki gets up and uh, goes to the front, barely making it with the turbulence. And I can see that he's giving them a hard time. So he's coming back. And I said, what happened? And he says, they are stupid idiots. And I said, why are they stupid idiots? I said, well, whilst we are flying through this weather, they started to balance the, the plane by pumping fuel from one side to the other. And that's absolutely not necessary when in such a uh, let's say a critical situation so i said to him whilst the plane is bouncing left right and center do you think it helped the situation that you nicky lauda owner of the aircraft goes to the front gives the two pilots a polo king and you walk back do you think that makes the situation safer and he said well what would you have done i said well i would have written down um what they've done and in a briefing after the flight i would have said that wasn't the right thing to do please consider that for your for for future flights and this is not that's that's not how i operate i just needed to get it off the chest because i would um, you know i just need to get the pressure off I said, well that's your problem um and many months later similar situation we're flying into la big turbulence and i see him taking out a tiny little notepad from his jacket and a pen and he's starting to write. And I said, what are you doing? He said, I'm still able to learn even in my old age. I'm writing <laughs> stuff down that I need to tell the pilots after we've landed. So he was just an amazing personality. That's an amazing and story. Because I was so close, I forgot that he was the three-time Formula One world champion, a driver that stepped out of the fire and survived, came back, won another championship, created his own airline um, extremely successful and here we go he, he he was my friend and he was nothing else than nikki and 
very close ally of Susie, my wife, and I. And a very influential uh, part of Lewis Hamilton's life. Um, so your two worlds kind of connecting there, you know, with, with the two of them. And I want to ask you about Lewis. What is it that most people wouldn't know about Lewis? The person you see in the media is very often somebody completely different when you know them personally. And our judgment can be misleading. And what you see from Lewis is this polarizing, exceptionally talent, talented racing driver interested in fashion, music, and you could see, you could say almost somebody that is perfect. But the truth is there's someone behind that went through a lot of suffering as well, exposed to racism as a young child. Someone very empathetic, highly intelligent, reflective ability to to have this um, self-introspection and someone that thrives to be better every day and that is something that i haven't seen before meeting him that he the reason he is a seven-time world champion is that he questions himself every day even after the most successful performances he still finds areas of weaknesses and gaps and that is not only in a racing car but it's also outside of the racing car we have had a very difficult situation in 2016 where our communication broke down and after months or so i reached out to him and said listen we got to talk because you're driving the car i own the team and run it so he came to see me um, in oxford we had a kitchen talk for many hours and what i said to him is that we will very often have different perceptions and opinions and you just need to acknowledge and understand that the person opposite you has a different point of view, has a different way of perceiving their own reality and maybe different objectives. But when understanding that, we can actually move on from it, agree to disagree or find a way forward that is that that functions. But at the end, we share the joint objectives. I want you to be driver of world championship and you want us to be the most successful team. So we, whilst, whilst sharing the same objective, there will always be more in common than what will split us. And I said to him, I of, I'm often having conversations with my wife that, that you know, we have an argument like in any other relationship, but I have never thought about divorce, divorce. So I don't want to divorce you because I couldn't imagine anybody else more talented in my car. And I guess that you don't want to leave the best team. So just going to find we have to just find solution we have to communicate even if it is um you know i'm missing the word even if it is awkward or painful and in those many years i've found myself in situations where i actually decided to not speak because i was upset and he the it turned around he became the more mature person or although i'm like 10 years older and he said, you forgot, we need to talk. <laughs> and that is fascinating to just be part of a journey of probably one of the most successful sports icons in the world. Who is skeptical, the word, I want to go back to the word that you used at the start of this conversation, skeptical about his own performance. You've even described yourself as being skeptical about the team's performance. I mean, this is a philosophy that's shared. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think we had that before we met doubting in yourself, questioning your performances, be it in a car or be it in, in, on the, from the pitfall where I am, I am, is something which we have in common and which makes us contributing to the team's development and the team's performance. And we have this, we have this um, pattern now that Sunday evening arriving at home, we would always speak to each other and we would never talk about what was good, only what was not good enough. And the, and the dialogue continues until the next race. I want to ask you about leadership. Uh, you have said that you, you want people around you who tell you no. Pushback is a good thing. Um, trust is established through that kind of feedback, similar to what you've just shared. How important is that to you about 
having those around you with consenting or with uh, dissenting opinions rather. The more successful you become, the less you will get honest feedback. People are dependent of you, people financially or emotionally, people will look up, up to you, will not question you, will be scared of your authority. And what you need to establish around you is actually in your private life and in your professional life, a way that people can give you honest feedback. And that means creating a safe environment. And that will very often be quite uncomfortable. If you're hearing things, you know, you're self-confident in what you do, success is happening. And then somebody's telling you that you behaved like an idiot or you weren't prepared enough or you shouldn't be late to meetings and disrespecting their time. That's one example that was given to you. And we took it to another level uh, and 360 degrees management performance meetings now don't take place in an anonymous, in an anonymous, in an anonymous way. And people can send in their feedback, but we do it like the anonymous alcoholics in a circle with our with all our, our all my peers and all my direct reports and everything is out in the open um, and that is a difficult right to hear it in an open group i can imagine but it made me progress as an individual and it created an environment where there is not only admiration but there is criticism and that is so important for my own personal development and of course going home my wife is my maybe biggest supporter but also my biggest critic what have you learned about yourself in those meetings the initial emotional reaction is pushback no that's not true you are wrong or an explanation why that happened and then you step back and you find out actually there's some truths. And even if for yourself, you didn't perceive that situation to be negative, someone in someone else's perception, it was. So you got to decide, is this something I need to change because I haven't realized? Or is this something I need to change because someone else felt that way? And that's quite interesting. Setting goals is an enormous uh, enormously important aspect of what you do. You talk about it a lot. Targets are very important. And also writing down those targets. And I think you have an exercise where you still within the team have those goals and targets, external goals or internal goals, laminated. Each person carries them with you. You told a story uh, once about f sort of finding that little piece of uh, laminated paper while searching for something in your, in your iPod on an overseas trip and noticing whether or not you had achieved the goals or whether you were on the path to achieving those goals, it is so crucial to your success, right? I think when we talk about it now, it sounds almost a little a little bit trivial. Everybody talks now about setting goals. The truth is it's one, if not the most important part of my own development. If you set yourself objectives, you spend time of trying to find out what makes you happy, you will establish a blueprint of that situation. You can almost imagine imagine yourself of um, being in that space. And that is extremely powerful because we create it. We, we actually create, we create our own path and we create the target. And writing it down by hand creates another pathway in your brain to make it a reality. And what we have done in the team is that we are asking all members to spend time to analyze what their targets are. And it can be personal targets, be a better father or a good husband, uh, lose some weight, um, but also your department's targets and the company's targets. And everybody buys into this, let's say from a company's objectives point of view and then we laminate that um, in a little leaflet and everybody has that in his briefcase or in a in a backpack and occasionally you stumble upon and i do, do it very regularly um, this morning i couldn't sleep and uh, i took the laminate out and looked at it and reflected and particularly after last 
weeks negative race, it was it was a good way to remember where I wanted to end this year. See, that's what I said about Monaco, right? You wouldn't sleep for a few days. I knew there was something in there. Um, it's still there. It's not four, four <laughs> days are not gone yet. Tomorrow, from tomorrow onwards, it's going to get better. Speaking of targets, Toto, uh, you will have a, some would say, a significant birthday the early part of next year, uh, one with a round number. You've... Don't say that. It's a terrible number. <laughs> it's, it's a number that I will have one month before you. Okay. It's, it is halftime, you have said, in an entrepreneurial life. So what's your target for the next 20 or 30 years? Where do we take it from here? It's funny. I, I, I don't care about birthdays. I forget about my, my own. The, the only ones I really know is my wife and my three children. And birthdays, I don't understand why, why that is a festive day. You, you, you're getting older. There is, you had no particularly particular contribution to your birth. So what are you actually celebrating? I, it was never of any importance. But I remember when I was when I decided to launch my own company or set, start up my own company, I was proud to being called the youngest entrepreneur uh, in my environment. And that kind of image of myself followed me a long time. And now I'm 49 years old. And as you say, I'm going to be 50 in January. And it's like, hold on a minute. You're not young anymore. People expect you and i expect myself to be successful in my prime business days and it's kind of you're losing the innocence and at the age of 15 my way but innocence from a play from a playful side in a way at least that was my perception when i was young and now i feel myself still very young and i i, I see myself developing and being still playful so i'm just about to reinvent my concept of being 50 plus because of my current self that's quite interesting but 50 doesn't sound anywhere young anymore and god knows how many good summer summers i have left <laughs> well let's certainly hope that you have um uh good weekends uh on the racetrack because we want you to sleep well and and <laughs> move to that 50th year in good in good speed Toto, thank you yeah, so much. Thank, thank you very much. There's good weekends are important, and but there's so much more that you can take joy from outside of your professional life. And I think it's important to keep that perspective that uh, it, there's more than sporting or financial success. And that gives you uh, the right perspective and takes pressure off you for your main activity. But thank you for having me. You have taught us about cars and culture. We appreciate that. Thank you for being on the show. Thanks to Total Wolf and Mercedes-Benz Formula One team. And thanks for listening to Cars and Culture. I'm Jason Stein in Detroit. We'll see you down the road. 